0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, one of your hosts here uh, tonight at the Real Science Exchange. Tonight, we're back for another installment of the Journal Club, modeled after the traditional journal clubs convened uh, at universities across the country and even around the world. We'll take a closer look at some of the newest uh, research published in the Journal of Dairy Science. In this episode, we'll be reviewing two complementary papers stemming from the recent USDA research study. Dr. Bill Weiss, our fearless leader here uh, for this segment. Uh, Bill is an um, America's professor from The Ohio State University. Um, we recently celebrated our 50th Real Science Exchange episode, and this is our fourth Journal Club. Bill, welcome back to the Real Science Exchange, and thank you for joining us here once again tonight. Uh, before we dive into the paper, um, have anything uh, interesting in your glass tonight?
1: Well, I'm kind of fighting an illness, so I've got ta- Cincinnati tap water in my glass tonight.
0: All right. Very well. We'll stay, 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 uh, stay healthy there. Um, Also joining us tonight at the pub is Dr. Clay Zimmerman and Dr. Glenn Ains. Both are part of the technical service team here at Balchem. So welcome to the exchange, gentlemen. And uh, what are you guys enjoying for the conversation tonight?
2: Scott, I've changed it up a little bit. I've got, I've got some Irish coffee here.
0: All right. Nice. And Glenn? I'm uh,
3: drinking a High Five, which is a local um, IPA comes out of uh, Fort Myers, Florida over there. And uh, it has to be in an insulated mug because it's a little muggy here in (laughs) in (laughs) Florida today. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, interesting that you uh, you mentioned IPA used to be a Uh, A total IPA drinker, Glenn, until one night at your house there in in Hamburg, New Jersey, you introduced me to uh, Templeton Rye on the rocks, and I enjoyed that. And since then, I've kind of been uh, a bit of a a bourbon rye enthusiast. So tonight, I've actually got uh, Templeton Rye in uh, uh, in, commemorating uh, uh, you getting me started on this obsession. So thank you for that, I think. (laughs) My pleasure. Uh, Yeah. Bill, to get us started, uh, would you mind introducing the papers and telling us why you uh, selected them?
4: Tonight's podcast stories are brought to you by Reassure Precision Release Choline. Reassure is the most researched encapsulated choline on the market today, consistently delivering results to your transition cows of higher peak milk, reduced metabolic disorders, and even in utero benefits to her calf leading to growth and health improvements. Visit Balchem.com to learn more.
1: Okay, well, I'm not gonna read the full titles because they're pretty long, but uh, they're published in Journal of Dairy Science earlier this year. Um, they're on sub- the, the basic titles are substitution of cane molasses for corn grain at two levels of degradable protein. It's a series of two papers. One is production papers or production responses. It's a long-term lactation study. The other one had the same basic treatments, but it was a Latin square, short term, um, and more rumen fermentation digestibility measures. the The reason I picked this one is we we do try to stick with uh, papers that have some ap- direct application, and feeding molasses obviously can be done today if they want. So, and the other thing is, I when I when I was working at Ohio State as extension, one question I got a lot is. Should I supplement sugar, which again, molasses is just basically, it's synonymous in the industry for sugar. Um, should I feed, supplement molasses or sugar? And uh, if so, under what conditions? And there's been a lot of studies, not a lot, but a fair number of studies looking at uh, different levels of molasses. And, and this one, and we'll, as we'll talk about, found some some different results than than what's typical, and that's another reason I picked it is to maybe explore why they, the some of the results they report are actually quite different than what most people would think.
0: Yeah, uh, looking forward to the conversation tonight, Bill. As a reminder to our audience, uh, the links to the papers will be in our show notes. Uh, Bill, the other thing I noticed, and uh, at least in the first paper, they were trying to see if uh, what they found uh, in reality matched what uh, the models are are representing. so i'm I'm sure that'll be part of the discussion tonight as well. Any thoughts you want to share uh, on that?
1: Yeah, this uh, that's another big part. One it's it's a little dated unfortunately because it is looking at the old NRC uh, which we can discuss. I didn't have time to run this through the new NRC. I think it would be a little bit better, uh, but I can't say, but they also looked at CNCPS model. And again, it's important. You know, these models have, have value and all, but they are models, and <laughs> people need to remember that. Um, and it's it's useful to predict real real responses, truly measured responses to model predicted. Just to, again, to maybe point out weaknesses of the model where where more research is needed to improve them. So,
0: yeah, yeah, very well. Um, um... So gentlemen, uh, anybody on the panel have any uh, idea whether or not um, molasses or sugars are being used extensively in the dairy industry today?
2: Yes, they are. I think, you know, particularly in, in in larger larger dairies, it's pretty pretty common to add a liquid sugar source on farm. Um I think they add it, you know, for various reasons. You know, as a sugar source, it's also a way to to add a little moisture to the TMR and 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 help the TMR help reduce sorting in the TMR are you know some of the reasons why I think they're they're added. Uh, maybe some of the others want to elaborate on that.
3: So I think there's a, a group of nutritionists out there that uh, believe that you need a certain level of sugar to optimize you know microbial protein synthesis and. Uh, so I think there's that element of it.
1: I, I, I don't have data, but I see a lot of diets, and and two or three percent added molasses is not uncommon. Well, it's not universal, but it's not uncommon. And you know, at Ohio State, we we for a long time we did this um, pricing feeds using sesame, and and it it prices feeds based on nutrients, and molasses was always probably for twenty years. Always in the overpriced range or the overpriced list, um, which means based on energy and protein, you would never feed it, but people do. So obviously, they're feeding it for something other than just energy. It does. They they think it does something more than just just provide as an energy source.
0: I'd have to say that um, you know a lot of the, the the current research would indicate that that is in fact true that you can get some increased milk production by feeding uh, sugars. Uh, in diets. So, Bill, why don't you get us started by just kind of going over kind of the hypothesis, and then a little bit about the the methods used in these uh, two studies. Okay. Well, let's start with the first the first paper.
1: Okay. Well, their basic hypothesis was that the response, the positive response to molasses, uh, would be affected by RDP level. And and for a long time, it's it's been promoted that to get maximum response to molasses, you the diets have to have adequate RDP and maybe even excess. So this is a valid hypothesis. They had uh, six a two, a two by three factorial, three levels of molasses, which were, uh, I'm rounding things off here a little bit to make it simple. Basically zero, five and 10% added molasses, liquid molasses. And then the the RDP treatments were just high and low. And I, I, I used, their diets and punched them into the old NRC, and I, I did have all their feed compositions, so these are approximate, but the low RDP diet was about 10 and a half, the high was about 11 and a half. And they, they got the difference in RDP by taking out expellers, the the low RDP diet had 100% expellers, um, The the high RDP diet; they took about half the expeller soy and put solvent soy in. And, and this is an important thing to remember. So what they did, they're they're saying, and this is a problem with all nutrition studies. So they're saying RDP differed, but you have to remember RUP differed just as much. Hmm. So as one goes up, the other one that went, went down. So whether this is a combination of that effect or or not, we don't know. And the substitution as molasses went up, the hypothesis was was that they're substituting basically for corn grain with a few adjustments for a little bit of the protein difference and some fiber differences. Uh, Starch was moderate at about, at the control diet, about 27. Starch went down as molasses went up. But the sum of sugars plus starch was about the same in all diets. Crude protein's the same in all diets. Fed it uh, uh, mid-lactation Holsteins, uh, 60 of them, but they have lost one cow, so only 59. And they fed it for 10 weeks. So this is a really good long-term study. Um, uh, 10 cows per treatment, which again is is adequate power. So the design was was quite good. Measured standard production measurements. Did digestibility using markers. Might have been a little limited on the number of fecal samples, but marker on, on digestibility. And then, like you, like you mentioned earlier, they plugged all this data into the old NRC. And and I didn't write down which CNCPS version. Maybe one of you guys did.
2: It, it was 6.55. Okay. Which, which is the current version commercially.
1: And then looked at predicted responses. Predicted energy responses. Uh, energy corrected milk yield, RUP balance, RDP balance, et cetera. The second study, same treatments, same hypothesis, different cows. These were all with cannulated cows. It was a Latin square. So now that it's only uh, 28 day periods, not 10 weeks and cows are changing diets, but The way they did the treatments is the the rdp treatment was fixed the cows didn't change that they only changed the molasses treatments as they went from period to period which again is a i think a good idea because the response to rdp oftentimes takes weeks and weeks and weeks to show up whereas molasses you would think would happen much quicker so again the design on on both i think and the 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 way it was done, both studies I think were was was adequately done or appropriately done.
2: Yeah, that that second study with, with the ruminally cannulated cows, that it, it was a split plot design as yeah. as yeah. Bill said. Where they the there there were six cows on the high RDP and six cows on the low RDP.
1: And I really, you know, I've used a lot of Latin Latin squares, but people really have to be aware of the limitations. And one is the time period. You know, it's, again, with RDP, there's, I think, studies done, I think it was done at at Madison or USDA, showed that these some of these differences on protein took six weeks to show up. So in a three- or four-week Latin square, you never see them. And so... Mm -hmm. Uh, you really have to evaluate Latin square experiments carefully. But again, with what they did, I think they, they captured most of the issues with the short-term studies.
0: Now, is that because it takes a while for the, uh, the microbiome to adjust to the different carbohydrate source? <laughs>
1: That's a good question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it, it may be um, that that would make the most sense because a lot of it is an intake. They just slowly, as you're, if you have a, a diet low in RDP, if it's really low, it shows up quickly. But over time, intakes start separating between treatments, then production follows. But the, the mode of action, I, I can't tell you why some of these things have such long legs.
0: You know, the other thing, Bill, I think that these were relatively late lactation cows. Does that have any implications for the results we may have seen?
1: Well, the the one study, the production study, was at 110. So I'm going to call mid-lactation. The other one, again, I didn't write that down, but they were later than 110. About
3: 105 days.
1: Okay. So and that all you always have to look at that. Um, If but 110 days is is I think it'd still be high production, high intakes, more likely to get a response. Late lactation, you know, a lot of times cows don't respond to anything. And, and so you have to be careful on that. But the, at least the production study, I don't think I would not categorize it as, as late lactation.
2: And they that production study they, they averaged a hundred pounds of energy corrected yeah. milk.
1: So so de- decent production or actually good production, but you know by today's standard, very good production.
2: So why don't
0: we dig into some of the results in that you saw from that first trial, Bill? what are some of the key uh, key findings and key surprises
1: okay well again the one reason i picked this is the the expected response to molasses is increased intake increased production not excuse me not necessarily you know uh more efficiency but they're going to eat more they're going to milk more and these cows didn't read the book <laughs> they they got a <laughs> linear <laughs> <laughs> a linear decrease in intake. As molasses went up, intake went down, and milk and milk components, most milk components did exactly the same thing. They went down. And, and, again, that's what I why I picked this is why did these cows eat less with molasses? Again, that's not expected. And a lot of times we learn more from negative results than positive because then it may tell you under... These conditions, if you can figure it out, you know you don't want to feed molasses. Um, but uh, so I, yeah, we really need to look at contrary results carefully because you can learn a lot. Um, and intake went down, I think, a couple kilos. I didn't write; I just yeah. wrote down linear, but it was not a trivial drop.
2: Yeah, it was it, it? was a. It, yeah, it was a five pound drop in dry matter intake. Yeah,
1: that's 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 a lot a lot of energy.
2: And and the The efficiency stayed the same. So, yep. right, the the drop in milk
1: coincided with yep. that drop in intake. Yep. And okay. you, when you look at, dig- they did measure digestibility. Mm-hmm. That was largely unaffected. And you know, one, if efficiency, if a nutrient's going to affect efficiency, a lot of times it's via improved digestibility. That didn't happen here. But you could argue a little bit as if intake drops five pounds, you kind of expect digestibility to go up a little bit just because of, of intake uh, effects. It's not a big effect, but it's there and that didn't happen. So there might be some some potentially negative effects on digestibility that are masked by the lower intakes. I guess the thing I'd like these guys to discuss and help me with is wh- why did intake go down? <laughs> Because again, this isn't—you can't blame the the experimental design. It was a well-designed experiment, and, and that's that's the uh, that's the big question. Because that that explains all the other results. Is it's, it's an intake effect?
2: And they got different results between these two papers oh, that came that's to intake.
1: Very uh,
2: So, but but we'll concentrate on this first paper with the you yeah. know the production study first and. Of course, they they hypothesized that that in this case the drop in dry matter intake was due to increased VFA production yeah. wow. and uh, perhaps increased propionate depressing intake. Now these weren't really early lactation cows where I don't know I would think you might expect that more mm-hmm. and even earlier lactation, but um, I don't know. It's a it's it's a good question. It's, it was a dramatic drop in yep. dry matter intake. They did have the control cows had, you know, with the zero molasses had very good dry matter intakes. Yep. Yep. Like I think they were up around sixty twenty eight twenty uh, nine. Yeah.
1: yeah. Man, do the math. So. Yeah.
2: So like sixty two pounds of dry matter yep. intake, yep. but they, yeah, they they saw two kilo drops
1: in dry matter intake and you know the the propionate is is you can't disclude it or exclude it in a lot like one another big study at at this was at the Ford center as well and this has probably been 10 or 15 years ago or more from glenn broderick who found nice increases with prope. uh in that study high moisture corn went out molasses went in so that you know high moisture corn produces a ton of propionate mm-hmm. so maybe that. Maybe molasses actually produced less. This was dry corn, and it was moderate starch, you know, 27% starch. So it might be that propionate production did did increase with molasses, where in some other studies with higher starch or more fermentable, it might not go up. So maybe it, at moderate starches, you don't see much benefit from, from molasses with dry corn.
2: So what one thing I... Noticed in this paper, so they it, it it was a ten week study, so they were two weeks on a covariate diet, and then and then eight weeks on the treatment diet. Yep. But they, the covariate diet varied quite a bit in ingredient sources, yep. right? They they were on high moisture corn as the grain source. Yep. Prior to this, they were on different protein sources. They were feeding canola meal. Yep. And, and some other protein sources. So so all the cows changed yep. from the corn source and a lot of the protein sources as the, as as they went went to this diet. Um I was calculating out um on a dry matter basis, you know so they these cows were on they were on ground dry corn and molasses. Uh, during the treatment phases. So the, the zero molasses treatments, they were eating about 11 and a half pounds of dry matter from, from, the, from the ground corn. And then they went down to about 8.6 and down to just below six pounds of dry matter corn on the high molasses treatment. So the molasses treatments, they were, of course, zero. Uh and then they went to, um, a little over three pounds of dry matter from molasses on the, that mid level. And then they were over, um, they were over six pounds of molasses on a dry matter basis. But they they'd done some previous work at the Forge Research Center up to
1: those levels. Yeah. I think Glenn had done Glenn Broderick had done some of that work previously. I think he went as high as nine, but it was close to that. And then you know that and you always wonder is dose ten ten percent molasses is a lot. It's, right. it's a lot. Um, you know, you start wondering is the stickiness could even be a, a physical impediment to intake. Uh, so that's one thing. I, you know, this is clearly says you you, you don't want to go that high. Wow. Even at five percent, you know, that was a a very it wasn't as big of a drop as a ten percent molasses, but it's still a, a substantial and significant drop. So. And if I remember right, and I should have read this better, is with, Glenn also looked at dry and wet molasses or liquid molasses. And the dry didn't seem to have some, some some of the, the effects of liquid wasn't quite linear. all there was some up and downs, but dry was pretty consistent and positive. So maybe again, it might be the, the it's overly sticky. And, and so you get clumps of feed that aren't, you know, aren't aren't tmr that cows may or may not eat so that it you know it may help sorting or it may make sorting worse too because it could clump a lot of stuff together but
3: with with a wet molasses you're talking
1: yeah exactly and the dry won't do some stickiness too but not as it tends to mix better and the liquid you know when you're mixing into a tmr it it may not make the nice uniform TMR we all want. So that that could be an issue as well. But they didn't mention it. I'm assuming they, if it was a big problem, they would have mentioned that. But
3: well, they did look at some sorting. And as I recall, I didn't read it that carefully, but I don't think
1: they saw a significant amount of sorting. Yeah, I think, I think that was in the second study, I think. I'm not, I'm not sure. It's kind
3: of hard, kind of hard yeah. to separate these two papers yeah. out when you're having these conversations. Yeah. Scott asked earlier about you know, the the drop in dry matter intake and, you know, you didn't see that in the second paper, but that was a much shorter period. And Bill, you mentioned that, you know, you see it takes a long time sometimes with these RDP studies to start to see the impact. So, is that decrease in dry matter intake over a more extended period of time, because you're just basically looking at the, the mean.
1: I would think, and again, I don't like to put words in investigators' mouths, but I would think they looked at time effects. It may not be in the model, but I'm assuming they would have plotted stuff out. Mm-hmm. And this drastic, I think if that was happening, they would have mentioned, I think. But again, maybe not. You mm-hmm. can't exclude the, the time, the, the duration. The other thing they mentioned here between the two papers was in paper one with the big drop, it was once a day feeding with the other one, it was twice a day. Yep. And again, that might, uh, have some effect on, on the way cows, you know, with with once a day feeding, we know they tend to eat a very big meal with that first feeding and that could have screwed these cows up and they never recovered the rest of the day. And with twice a day feeding, they eat their first meal after being fed is still going to be smaller than with once a day. So that's that's something to think about.
2: Yeah. yeah. So the only thing that, the only key parameter that, uh, from a production standpoint, that wasn't negatively affected by the increasing molasses doses in this case and, and the decrease in corn, was was uh, fat, right? Mil- milk, milk, milk fat yield held yep. across the treatments. And, and percentage went up. Yep.
1: That's you know, a common common response to molasses is that fat test, if you pull out starch, put molasses in, fat test goes up. And usually fat yield goes up if intake doesn't drop by five pounds. So you know it it it, it helps on fat production. There's no question if they can figure out the why intake drops so much, you know, that the, the response probably would have been very nice. Um, the other thing I thought was of interest before we get to the model thing is is they measured feeding behavior, which and it did molasses made cows eat more meals a day. Um, they ate less feed, but they ate more meals, which again, isn't normal. Normally it's they eat less, they eat fewer meals. and, and more meals is usually a good thing. You know, that's right. Good. And so this may be another reason um, feeding some molasses may be useful because it might might stimulate uh, a reduced meal size, which should make for a more stable room. In this case, it wasn't beneficial, but that may have some some benefits in the long term.
3: And that, that's one of the really curious things about this is you saw this better eating pattern. And you would think that you would have advantages in terms of microbial protein synthesis and, you know, just you know, efficiency of use of, of the diet. But it's just exactly the opposite, which is very, very curious.
1: And you kind of wonder, is again, is this some physical thing that, you know, they're, they're trying to eat this very, very sticky diet. And maybe they just got tired of chewing and said, we're going to stop eating for a while <laughs> and come back and try again. Because, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've never, i never seen it with with ten percent molasses. I don't know what the consistency would be, but yeah, I, I it has to have some <laughs> effect on that. So,
0: would there be a palatant, uh, um, something to do with how them liking the 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 sugars, of the molasses, having them go back more often? Could that be part of it?
1: it? It could, but you'd think if if it was just that, they'd also eat more. You know, they they'd go, they'd make more meals. But they'd eat more total dry matter, and you know, it, to us, at least to me, you know, I like sweet things. I'm going to eat more, but we we got to be careful about putting human attributes on cows and whether they like sweet or not. You know, I I don't know. It it uh, I'd say based on a lot of the other intake, it other stuff is definitely not anti palatable, but whether that's the reason we're getting these effects or not, I I just don't know.
0: You know, unfortunately, uh, Dr. Mary Beth Hall was unable to join us tonight. I'm, I'm curious, Bill, if you've had any conversations with her, and uh, what's some of her thinking related to these questions.
1: We have talked a bit on this, and and the pro theory is is bit the, the biggie that all this big chunk of molasses increased propionate production went to the liver, and via the the hot theory of Mike Allen's, that reduces feed intake. And it, it, it kind of fits. I mean, the 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 other study where they did a lot of rumen stuff, propionate wasn't higher. But what they're arguing is it's really a a short term regulator. You know, propionate goes up, the cow stops eating, and that could explain the the more meals. Um, presumably, they didn't measure a bit. The meal size has to be down if if they eat more. Or eat less, but more meals. Then the amount eaten per meal has to be less. That fits the propionate theory. So it may be uh, this this short-term thing, uh, or the the effect of, of propionate on short-term intake regulation. And that's the the thing that I think that they're really putting their hat on is that. And I don't know. I didn't ask if they're going to continue work in this area. I should have. But.
3: I was actually surprised when they cited that about 42 percent of VFA's coming out of molasses was butyrate, and about 42 percent was propionate, which I would not have expected that. You yeah. um, know, so
1: yeah, especially you know a lot of people use use molasses because it tends to or they, they the belief is it's going to produce less acidosis. Than starch so high starch you pull some starch out put molasses get the energy but you get the reduced risk of acidosis but if it produces this much propionate which is a lot more than I thought as well then that may not be the the thing we want to do either is that it may not really help reduce acidosis with very high starch diets again th- these were these were what I'd consider moderate but mm-hmm. that surprised me as well and the, and the high lacting. Uh, what uh, was it with 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 rdp or without one with, of with with the rdp with, with yeah. rdp yeah, yeah it, it produced a fair amount of lactate mm-hmm. lactic acid and the interaction is also between with with uh the, the other with the low rdp it didn't do anything in
3: lactic yeah we're jumping ahead to the paper yeah. too but yeah. yeah that was some interesting observation as well
1: yeah. and i guess one one thing we haven't really looked at is there was essentially no effect of RDP, no main effect of RDP on anything, essentially. There was a few little, I'm going to call them flukes. But, you know, we we would expect, if these diets are really deficient in RDP, we expect increased intake, increased digestibility. That's well-established. And and so that suggests that these diets may not have been different enough in, in RDP, or the, the low, what they're calling low RDP, may not have been low enough, even though the models say that they may not have been low enough.
2: The The other thing I thought was interesting related to that, there were absolutely no
1: differences in MUNs
2: yeah. across these treatments. Yep.
1: yep. Okay. People need to remember, MUN comes from RDP and from catabolized amino acids in it. <laughs> Crude protein's the same and milk protein's the same. You almost bet MUNs are going to be the same, almost all. Them. So it's not just RDP that makes MUNs. So.
2: Yeah,
0: Bill, are sugars uh, absorbed across the room and wall?
1: I don't think so. But I'm going to, I would, I would not think so. Based on what we know on absorption, I don't think they have, because they'd have to have glucose receptors. And I just, I don't know, but I'm going to say I doubt it. And I'd almost, you know, with as rapid as these things ferment, I don't know if there'd be much of a chance for it to even get absorbed before it's turned into probe and, and butyrate. So. Right.
3: Back to the question about the RDP, the models seemed uh, to deal with the RDP differently. Yeah. Right? They tended to overpredict. Milk production, energy corrected milk, on the plus RDP diets, but it went just the opposite direction with the uh, with the negative RDP. Yep.
2: So I think I think you said that backwards. The My. high RDP, R, the high RDP diet, the models underestimated energy corrected yeah. milk. My
3: apologies. No.
2: Yeah. And the the low R the low RDP a, actually the two thousand one NRC was pretty close on that, would, that one. Walked it,
3: it pretty close, yeah.
2: Yeah, and and CNCPS was uh, was under or was overestimating. Um. But that that may be. I I think that uh you know with the changes coming in version seven of cncps my guess is that will do a better job of um, predicting on those lower rdp diets Um,
3: what about
2: rdp diets um i think i think it'll get closer to predictions both ways um
1: Yes, one thing, I've, and I'm not that familiar with CNCPS. I want to be very clear on that, so you guys can talk more on that. But on NRC, a lot of people get confused and think any allowable milk equals predicted milk. It It does not. It has nothing to do with predicted milk. It simply says if the cow eats this much energy, you take out maintenance. There's enough energy left to produce this amount of milk. You, you can get energy allowable milk from a dry cow, but so you really the the comparison they make on milk is they need to take they have body weight change that's that's milk potential and they really need to mm-hmm. convert that to milk and say this is the energy allowable milk and if you do that they actually NRC did pretty well on the on the um, low RDP, it, all, this, all this extra energy that NRC says could go to milk, it um, went to body weight instead. So just be, be careful when you evaluate papers, if they're looking at allowable milk and actual milk, because they are not synonymous. Uh, NRC did not partition energy. And so it just says this much energy. If it all went to milk with zero body weight change, this is how much milk they'd produce. So I, I, I do think they are overstating the excess. The, the 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 overprediction is really not as overpredicting as they think. It's actually pretty close, at least with the NRC model. The underpredicting is another question. That's they, these cows should not be losing body condition. They didn't. So then that's that's a, a true error but the overprediction was probably not.
2: So so Bill I know you addressed this a little bit earlier but, but I've got to ask the question again. How how do you think the 2021 NASEM would would predict relative to one
1: it, it it won't predict the lower intake I guarantee that that <laughs> won't <will> happen. <laughs> Um it would predict with the with the intake equation, it's going to produ- predict essentially equal intake because the things that affect in the predicted intake didn't change among diets. Um, so I wouldn't predict that. It would on the the um, it would my guess it, it would with with molasses added in taking out uh, cornstarch energy will go up and mega per kilo will go up a little bit at 10 it may go up you know substantial but not a substantial but a measurable amount which would mean you'd get more milk if intake was the same you would get more milk if you adjust for the intake um, I, I think it would do pretty well i don't the this rdp difference though my guess and again, I'm gonna actually do this sometime when I have some time, is that it would predict a difference in, in um, the the RDP differences, I think would be better estimated than the old one. But I, I do think on the energy side, if you just, the either if, if intake went down, milk production would not go down as much as the model predicted, energy allowable milk would not go down as much because they're going to get more energy per kilo so
0: so what implications if any does this uh, data have for uh the models
1: Be, be careful about i don't think they're doing well on molasses addition uh on predicting responses in in to molasses um on the protein thing again, I'm not going to comment on CNCPs. I'll let these other guys do on do it. The, they, it's not. I think the old one clearly always overvalued, always overstated protein requirements. Or I shouldn't say always, but generally protein requirements were too high on the old one. The new ones are going to be lower, so hopefully it will fit fit better. Be careful with high molasses diets. I don't know how well these models will predict responses.
2: the The other thing with uh, I'm going to give a plug to to our September um, real real science lecture series here because that that will be Mike Van Amberg talking about version seven of CNCPS. But uh, my understanding is that will have the ability to better model the diurnal variations in ruminal ammonia levels, which which should help better predict what would be happening here. Yep.
0: Should we try to duplicate this data before we really start thinking about making changes to the models?
1: Uh, You know, no model's ever gonna be perfect. Um, You always, you know, you wanna, you always be careful of any study, but, You know, there's something I'd really think this, this data and this should be really evaluated carefully with these models to see, or take like Broderick's data, see how the models predicted it, where it did what we think, and then see where this one differs, where it didn't do what we think and go from there. But again, there's a reason these cows did what they did. I don't know what it is, but there's a reason. And maybe these models might have using using molasses studies where cows were 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 better, and this study find out what what really is being predicted differently, and maybe that will help answer the question. But yeah, you always have to be careful with the results from one study. Always.
0: Yeah. So you say you don't know why the cows did what they did. If you were designing another study to try to better understand that, uh, what would you do, Bill? Hmm.
1: Okay, one, again, if it's just the the concentration, you know, I I don't think 10% molasses is is practical either. So I I would cut it at a lower level, max it out at 6% or something, three and six, something like that, to just eliminate maybe too much. Uh, On the protein end, I would probably, um, if I worried about RDP, I would probably have um, two different crude protein levels. In other words, fix RUP at some number, mm-hmm. and feed ten percent, nine percent RDP and eleven or twelve percent RDP um, to really isolate the effect of RDP. Not again, because you know they might have fixed the RDP, but then induced an RUP deficiency. You just don't don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I would would look at that, um, and that that would be to me the biggest on the on the treatments. Uh, that's probably the biggest changes I'd make. I, I guess one, i would ask these guys, one other thing, when I looked at some of the other papers, this paper had the lowest NDF of, of the papers I looked up. This this was about 26. The rest were about 30. Do you think right. that might been been an issue?
2: Yeah, I was wondering that too. They, um, It's brown midrib corn silage, first of all. It's all BMR corn silage. And it, again, if you look at the covariate diet versus the treatment diets in that study, the uh, the covariate diet was higher was higher in, in alfalfa silage. So the uh, yeah, there were some there were differences going from that covariate diet in NDF and uh, and and forge, forge particle size and so forth.
1: Yeah. So, you know, may, maybe with these, I'm not going to call it marginal because there's no data support that this was low, but it, you know, with, with maybe marginal fiber diets, maybe these very high molasses, maybe it's just, uh, they didn't have enough fiber to, to counteract yeah. these yeah. very fermentable yeah. diets. Yeah. You know, 10% yeah. is a lot. Yeah. I guess no, that's one, a good point. One, one last point I think was really good in this paper. <laughs> as they pointed out you know molasses is is a good source of sugars but it's also 18 percent ash
3: yeah
1: ash has zero percent energy that's one number i bet my life on is the the energy content of ash and ash can it do some they didn't uh, i i do want to criticize a little bit they didn't report the mineral concentrations in these diets they reported ash But, you know, you add that much ash to diets, you know, you can screw things up. And so, you know, the mineral balance that you have to pay potential potential, uh, with molasses, you are adding a lot of minerals and that has to be taken into account with formulation.
2: You're adding a lot of potassium when you add molasses,
1: right? Yeah. Uh, Four or 5% K. It's got a lot of all the (laughs) It's got a lot of chloride. it has a not not on sulfur, it has some sulfur, not as bad as distillers, but 0.6, 0.7% 6, sulfur. Uh, which again, with if they didn't make an adjustment in their diets on sulfur, if you had 10% molasses with 0.6% sulfur, that's a fair amount of sulfur that can be some negative effects. Uh, and then a fair amount of sodium, but it K is by far the biggest biggest mineral in it, which usually is a good thing for lactating cows, but it is counteracted by the high sulfur, the high chloride.
0: We started our discussion with uh, uh, a commentary about how many uh, dairy farmers are currently using molasses. What are the implications for people that are are feeding molasses? What, what would your recommendations be basis uh, this study, Bill?
1: I'd stick with moderate inclusions, two to 3%, which again, I think is is the, I won't call it the industry standard, but very common. That's a very common inclusion rate. A lot of the data support that, that level of supplementation. The, this paper would suggest if you are kind of low in, in forage NDF or using highly fermentable forage sources like BMR, you might consider yanking it. It may not have the benefits you think it's having. If it's a typical forage diet, uh, standard corn silage, NDFs around 30 or so, um, this, this I, I'd stick with it. But if you're going lower in forage, consider reducing or eliminating molasses, but two, 3%, I think. this This paper would not discourage me from supplementing two or 3% molasses
0: Anything else we need to discuss relative to this paper? Not for me. Okay. What about the second paper? Have we covered that adequately, or are there some items that we need to discuss there?
1: i, I say I'm not a and guy, but <laughs> I, I say in general it fits the production data. It, it, okay. the, the big difference, though, was intakes, and these were high intakes, I remember, 30 kilos or something. Right. Didn't, didn't change. That's important thing at these later lactation cows, no effect on with again a 28-day period Latin square, no effective intake, and then no effect on, on production as you'd expect. Which again, I if if I was uh, these investigators, I would really feed all this stuff in and try and figure out what's what's going on. The the two the to me the, the change in the one X to two X, that's an intriguing idea. Is that the problem? Is if you're gonna feed molasses, plan on feeding two X. I, I, I'd like someone to do a simple, nice simple experiment on that. That to me would be a nice thing to do. Um, but I think in general, it, it fit, fit the production data. If you if, ignore the intake effect.
3: Yeah, the, the, the inconsistency, what I saw was that they saw no change in propionate between treatments yeah. so when you start using propionate as a possible explanation of the first paper's results this is inconsistent uh, I I interpreted it that way at least um so not sure what exactly to say about that yeah
1: and that then again with these once a day feedings the yeah. the meal patterns are very different and that that might be where, Again, that first really big meal after first time after the only time they're fed, that might have been, if it was appropriate thing. That might be where the effect did, and with the two X, it's it would be less less dramatic. So
2: now in 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 the second paper, uh, yeah, definitely different outcomes as far as intake and and production. They they did start to see some, a little interaction between RDP level yeah, yeah. and molasses level.
1: Yep. Yeah. On um, with respect I've got a look here. Um, so, it, so so milk fat
2: yield it was it was actually a uh, it was a quadratic effect there. That that uh that uh mid-level of molasses uh Okay. With a with a high RDP uh, saw an increased fat yield mm-hmm. uh, compared to the low RDP. Yeah. And there's some tendency. There's a tendency there for a higher um, milk protein percent with on the high RDP diet. Yeah. There's a lot of variability in the study. Um, you know, from a statistics standpoint, but they're, um, uh, numerically, that's a pretty big difference in, in milk protein percent, Al- almost two-tenths of a point.
1: Yeah, I think with, um, again, the first experiment, I think plenty of power for, when when you do factorials, you set power up to detect interactions. That's that's why you did the experiment. With, with this one, with 12 cows, uh, it was twelve cows, right? So yeah. thirty-six yeah. cow periods. It, it is that's that's less power. Again, it's a lot of power for main effects or for non-factorial things. But for interactions, that's getting. I'm going to say marginal. It's it's better than most people do. I want to say there's more power <laughs> in this than most Latin squares. But again, for interactions, it's a, a little, especially with a split plot interaction. It's, it's a little bit limited.
3: Yeah, the only other thing that I would comment about was they, there, there's clearly some differences in the fermentation patterns uh, between the, the treatments. And they do allude to the fact that uh, they think that maybe looking at microbiome down the road might be an interesting thing to do to see if we're seeing shifts in microbial populations that... Might have uh, some interesting ramifications.
1: Yeah, and with with the technology we have now, that's getting to be pretty easy. I don't know how to do it, yeah. but it's getting to be, <laughs> be pretty easy. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and I think you're going to see more and more of that, just because it now it, we can do these things with molecular biology that we could never in the past do. So. Yeah.
0: Bill, any final thoughts on that second paper? I see that they've called last call. Want to make sure we get the get the information in that you want to you want to share.
1: No, I, uh, again, I if uh, you, you with these series, I think it's always important to read both papers because if you don't, you you would have missed the 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 short term. What I'm going to say, fermentation study, the very different intake results you would have met, overlooked. But again, a lot of times these fermentation or digestion studies support the. Production studies, and again, if you correct for the uh, the difference in intake, they I think they are relatively supporting. So,
0: all right. So with last call, uh, I'm going to have each of you guys talk about kind of the the key takeaways, key implications for uh, dairy nutritionists, dairy farmers. Um, Glenn, would you mind if we start with you?
4: Tonight's last call question is brought to you by NitroSure Precision Release Nitrogen. NitroSure delivers a complete TMR for the rumen microbiome, helping you feed the microbes that feed your cows. To learn more about maximizing microbial protein output while reducing your carbon footprint, visit balcom.com/nitroSure.
3: Well, I, I think probably the biggest thing for me was very basic. I was pretty shocked at the degree of drop in in dry matter intake as a result of the molasses additions. Uh, a little bit intrigued by the concept that maybe things are a little too sticky or the, the more frequent meals um, and what effect, you know, that might have. Um, and then I definitely, from the second paper, it just seems like there's some clear shifts in, uh, in the fermentation patterns. Um, and I'd love to see them do that microbiome study to see what actually is uh, potentially going on there. So,
2: right. Thank you, Glenn. Clay, what say you? Well, I think Bill hit on a lot of important things uh, a little earlier when when he was summarizing some of this. But but yeah, the uh, the researchers were they were they were shocked at the at the results with the the reduced dry matter intake and in that first study on on the production side. So I am I am, I am intrigued by Bill's comment about you know, the lower NDF levels, and especially with, you know, with highly digestible fiber in the diet, if that's maybe playing some role here as well. So um, it, uh, I, I would say that, that that would be a watch out here in that, in that case. And, and of course, the high level of additions of molasses was a quite a high level compared to what we would typically see in the field very well.
0: And Bill, any final thoughts?
1: No, just keep uh, molasses supplementation or inclusion rates reasonable. And I think reasonable is under 5%. I think these papers show that feeding behavior or feeding management may have, may, because it's not been tested, but may have a big effect on responses to to diets. And lastly, nothing works 100% of the time. And this, this shows that that's why we replicate experiments. So, you know, it's not, nothing is ever going to work all the time.
3: All right. Thank you for that, Bill. Looking forward to hearing what you find out when you run this through the new management model,
1: I'll let you know.
0: All right. Sounds good. Well, thank you, Bill. Uh, This has been an interesting conversation. Thank you for bringing these two papers to us. Uh, Clay and Glenn, thank you for uh, once again being part of the uh, Journal Club uh, experience. We appreciate having you here and look forward to the next time. Uh, it's been a very interesting conversation and should have implications for uh, years to come. And as always, want to put a big thank you out there for our loyal listeners for stopping by once again here at the Real Science Exchange to spend some time with us. Uh, hope you learned something. Hope you had some fun and hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends.
4: We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests. So please reach out via email to anh.marketing at balchem.com with any suggestions and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and t-shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Balchem's Real Science Lecture Series of webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash real science to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars.